Welcome to Hillside Baptist Church Podcast. We are a church that is committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege to open God's word with you. It is our prayer that you receive the message from the man of God with an open heart. That through God's word, you are encouraged and equipped to face life's challenges. But most importantly, it is our prayer that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior if you haven't already. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at hillsidebc.com, find us on Facebook, or send us an email at info at hillsidebc.com. We hope that you benefit from today's message and that you would share it with a friend. But let's now open our hearts and God's Word you have your Bible tonight to the book of Luke in chapter number 23, Luke 23. And of course, we've come to the story of Calvary. There they crucified him. Calvary means the cranium. It's the same as the Hebrew word Golgotha. It's the place of the skull where the Lord Jesus Christ would die for you and for me. And you know, there's so many angles that the Bible gives us of Calvary. To me, one of the more powerful ones is in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 3 where the Bible says that in your busy Christian life, in my life, there needs to come time when we stop everything and we consider Him. I mean, where everything else gets laid aside and, and all the busyness of the day and all the work hours and the rest and, and you and I do nothing but grab a Bible and consider Him. But you know, the Bible takes it a step further, doesn't it? It says in Hebrews 12 and 3 to consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself. Have you ever done that? You know, if we started tonight just listing the contradictions of the cross... We'd be here a long time. Everything is wrong. I mean, the creator of the universe dies by his creation. The one who is love is on the cross by those who are full of hate. There's only one person that ever walked on this earth who didn't deserve to be on the cross. And there he is on the cross dying for those of us who belong on a cross. I mean, everything is backwards and everything is wrong. It is the contradiction of sinners against himself. And then the Lord goes on to say this, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You know, I don't know if we appreciate what a problem that is in the Bible, that you can get weary in well-doing, and I can become faint in my thinking. And over a period of time, why, we can know what the Bible says, we can sing the songs of heaven, we can say it, quote it, we can even preach it. We can do everything we're supposed to do externally, but right down here where it really counts, we have gotten cold and distant towards Calvary. It's the reason with a burdened heart the Lord Jesus begged a church in Revelation. You've left your first love. Come back to Calvary love. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And so that I don't become weary in my mind. And you don't become faint in your thinking. The Bible says the answer is to go to Calvary and consider what Jesus did on the cross for you and the price that he paid for me. Consider consider him. And so if you have your Bible tonight, and if you're able physically, could I invite you to stand together with me as we go to Calvary to consider him, the one who died for you and he died for me. 
And the Bible says in Luke 23, 63, and the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. Father, we pray for your help tonight as we come to the mighty words of our God. Would you please do a work in this place that a preacher could never do? Would you please go into the hearts and the souls of your children tonight and, and may Calvary love warm our cold hearts. For someone who's never been saved, may this be the night they come to Calvary and they're born again into the family of God. We ask for your help in Jesus' great name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18, the Bible says Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And if you talk about the contradiction of Calvary, here it is. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The contradictions of the cross, doesn't that say it well? The just for the unjust, the clean, pure, innocent, holy Lamb of God has gone to an old rugged cross to die for an unjust, hell-deserving sinner like me. I'm the one who belongs on that cross. I'm the one responsible for my sin. I'm the one who deserves to pay the price. And yet on that day, the just Lamb of God is dying for an unjust sinner like me. The contradiction of Calvary, the just for the unjust. So when we come to Luke chapter 22 uh, and the Bible tells us the men are holding Jesus Christ, we read the story of the just for the unjust. Later in the story, it is the Roman soldiers that will hold him. But at first, Jesus Christ has been arrested by what is often called the temple police. The temple police. Maybe it's better to call them the temple Gestapo. Why the vile, dirty, acting high priest, an evil man by the name of Caiaphas, he has his own police force so they can enforce all of the restrictions and all of the demands that religion has done as it has corrupted the Bible in Jerusalem. This temple police force, this Gestapo is ruthless. They are brutal. They will stop at nothing. Why, they will abuse poor widows and take their very last might telling them, you have to do this. You have to pay your temple tax. You have to pay your tithe. Why, they would abuse everything and everybody. So now when they arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be surprised when the Bible says they mock him, they ridicule him. They're going to play sport with the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says they smote him. They take their whips and they begin to flay him and rip the flesh from his body. Now they blindfold him and with a blindfold over the eyes of Jesus, sometimes with their fist and other times with sticks, they begin to beat the Lord Jesus Christ. And you listen to these foolish men mocking and taunting and beating Jesus. And as they are whipping the blindfolded Son of God, they are taunting him with this question, prophesy, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? You know, these men are so ignorant, they don't even know that that question is a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a week earlier that the Lord Jesus Christ took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written in the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated, and spitted upon, and they shall scourge him and put him to death. 
and the third day he shall rise again. No, uh, earlier the Lord Jesus Christ had prophesied of this day and to make it all the more stunning. When Jesus spoke the words, I suspect the ones listening to him were absolutely stunned and shocked because Jesus was riding the crest of popularity. In a day or two, they'd be waving palm branches. They would be singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet Jesus said, no, the day is coming where they're going to mock me, beat me, spit upon me. And as this filthy Gestapo, as these temple police force, as they are abusing the creator of the universe, the one who is merciful and compassionate, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, little do they know their foolish question fulfills the prophecy that Jesus gave when it was the just for the unjust. The Lord Jesus stands there silently. Of course he does. The, the silence of the Lord Jesus is another fulfillment of prophecy. 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53, 7, the Bible promised he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he openeth not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so openeth he not his mouth. Everywhere you turn in Luke 22 and Luke 23, Jesus is never, never in a hurry, not a blast of hurry, the song says. The Lord Jesus is patient. We might well say tonight that he is eloquent in his silence. He is victorious in his peace. The soldiers cannot stop him. The temple police cannot stop him. All the power of religion cannot stop him because the Lord Jesus has an appointment with a cross where the just dies for the unjust. On this night, and day, Jesus will face six examinations. First, he will stand before the godfather of their religion, a wicked, wicked man by the name of Annas. Annas by now was the retired high priest, and Annas was the man that had everything under his thumbs. Why, he pulled the strings, he did it all. He was enormously rich, and he was enormously powerful, and he was enormously wicked. Annas the Lord Jesus would find an appointment standing before the man who was responsible for the corruption of religion. From there, Jesus would stand before the acting high priest, not coincidentally, the son-in-law of Annas, another wicked man by the name of Caiaphas. From Caiaphas, Jesus would be ushered in before the board, the board of the Sanhedrin. From there, Jesus would go to Pontius Pilate, the coward of all time. From Pilate, he would stand before King Herod. And when the Bible sums up the story of Herod, it just says he was a man of many evils. And when it goes from Herod, it is back to Pontius Pilate for a second time. Six examinations. And every single one of these examinations was backwards. It is Annas who should be judged by Jesus. It is Caiaphas who belongs in the courtroom with Jesus as the judge. It is Pilate. It is Herod. It is every one of those members of the Sanhedrin who should have been, and by the way, one day, they will stand in judgment before the Lord Jesus Christ, but not on this day. Every single one of these examinations is one more day where it is the just before the unjust. Justice. Justice. There will be no justice on this day. An enormous number of laws are going to be broken. Let me give you six of them.
The law demanded that trials be held only during the day. Their law demanded that trials always be held in a public hall, never in a private house. The law insisted on witnesses for the defense. The law protected the accused until someone is pronounced guilty. All of the beatings and all of the mockings are illegal. The law demanded two minimum days for a capital trial. And most of all, their law, like our law, insisted that a man could never be judged on his own testimony. The law... Uh, let's just take the law and rip it in half. Let's just toss it in the garbage. Let's throw it in the dump. Let's just burn it with fire. The law means nothing on this day. The standards don't exist on this day because right has become wrong and wrong has become right. And the pure, clean Lamb of God is going to stand before the most unjust and wicked of humans. But then again, isn't that what you'd expect? When it is the just... For the unjust. Now in Luke chapter 23, Jesus stands before Pilate, the judge. And in verse number 24, then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, and notice these words are legal words. They come out of their legal dictionary. They certainly paint a powerful picture for you and for me, but even more so in Bible times. In effect, what we have in verse number four, we have the judge of the trial pounding his gavel down, and the judge of the trial announces to everyone, I find no fault in this man. You know, it's not even like the judge says not guilty. It's not even like the judge said he is innocent. I mean, it's not like wink, wink, you know, so many times seems to happen in America. It's not like, well, you know he did it, and I know he did it, and everybody knows he did it, but somebody greased the skids. Somebody paid somebody. Some lawyer said the wrong thing at the wrong time. I, some police officer didn't do everything 100% right. And how many guilty people walk out the door of a courtroom where everybody knows they're guilty, but the case wasn't proven? That's not what we have here. This is not the judge of the trial saying, you know he did it, and I know he did it, but you didn't prove your case. No, the judge, the judge, the judge of the trial has just pounded the gavel down and said there's nothing to see. He didn't even say he's innocent. He took it to another level. And I find no fault in this man. We have scrutinized him. You have brought your phony witnesses in here, and they didn't even get their story right. Why, the judge of the trial says there is absolutely nothing to see. There is not one case you can make against him. There is not one of these things that you have spoken that is true. The judge of the trial says there is no fault, no stain, not a spot in him. You know, verse number five ought to simply read, so they opened the door and Jesus walked out a free man. But that verse isn't in the Bible. And do you know why? Because this is the just for the unjust. Everything's wrong. There's no justice on this day because from Pontius Pilate, the Lord Jesus Christ is brought before that wicked King Herod, that man of many evils. You know, in the Bible, we know three of them. Certainly, if we know three 2,000 years later, there must have been so many more. We know that dripping from the hands of this vile human is the very blood of John the Baptist. We know that this man is a very lustful, dirty man. We know that this man is an adulterer beyond the 
pale. We are looking at a man who's dirty on the inside. We are looking at a man who is dirty on the outside. Everything is wrong when the pure Lamb of God is standing in the palace of the slimy, filthy King Herod. And so how does King Herod deal with the king? Well, the Bible tells us in verse number 11 that Herod with his men of war, and, and you know, for some reason, this next phrase, for all that you read in the Calvary story, this gets me every time. He set him at naught. In other words, what Herod does is worse, it seems, because he treats Jesus like he's a nothing. He says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know where you are? You are in the presence of the great King Herod. And the Bible tells us that with the creator of the universe standing before him, Herod treats Jesus like he is a nothing. From there it gets worse. The Bible says they mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. They lampooned him. And then he sent him again to Pilate. When Herod finally gets tired of playing his little baby games, the Lord Jesus is dismissed again. And as we watch Jesus stand there silently in front of this arrogant, evil narcissist, and we listen as the Lord Jesus doesn't say a word as Herod plays his games, all we can do is shake our head and say, perhaps like no other time has there been an occasion where such a just man stood before such an unjust king but then again that's how it works when the just dies for the unjust from Herod it is back to Pilate and at the end of verse number 14 Pilate does it again I do think they call this double jeopardy do they not and and the Bible says and behold I having examined him before you and again I remind you these are all terms out of their legal dictionary Pilate says I have done a legal inquiry I have done this according to the law I have followed the law every single step of the way and the Bible tells us he said I have found no fault in this man but notice this time he goes even another another step further. It is not just that I have found no fault in him, but he said there's no fault touching those things whereof you accuse him. You haven't laid a finger on him. You haven't scratched the surface. There is not one thing you have even touched him with. The judge of the trial says, nor, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. So for the second time, the gavel comes down, and he says, you haven't made a case. And not only that, he is saying, there is no case to be made. This man has done nothing amiss. This man has said nothing wrong. Uh, you have not brought in one trial evidence. You have not brought one witness. You have not laid a charge against him that has any reason. Decent people see it all. There is not one thing that you have said about this man that is true. And the judge of the trial says it for the second time, there's no fault. There's no fault. And so certainly if earlier they didn't open the door and set him free, verse number 16, doesn't it have to say, doesn't it have to say that the judge looks at this man who is falsely accused, he looks at this man that is falsely charged, that he will say to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are free to go. But somehow in verse number 16, this coward of all time said, I will therefore chastise him and release. Really? How, how would you like that in a courtroom? There's not one charge that is true. He is completely innocent. Not only completely innocent, he is not guilty. Everything you say is wrong. Everything you say is a lie. You haven't scratched the surface. You haven't touched him with one of your charges. 
So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to beat him to shreds. Where's the justice in this? What kind of judge makes a statement like this? What kind of person, forget a judge, with any decency? What kind of human could look at someone who is pure and innocent and clean and holy and say, what I'm going to do since he is so clean and innocent and pure and holy is I'm going to rip his back to hamburger meat. Will that satisfy your bloodlust? And while you and I can only shake our head and say, what in the world is this? Well, we do know what it is. It is the just for the unjust. Now the Bible tells us in verse number 18, the solution that Pilate needs is given to him. And it is given to him by the religious establishment. You see, this being the Passover week, well, hundreds of thousands of people have literally come to the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it's the number one time of the year. They have all come for the, the great Passover sacrifice. They have all come for this magnificent day and, and at such an occasion to show their good hearts. The Roman Empire would release a prisoner unto them. Well, Pilate's got that made, doesn't he? If there's anybody that should be released, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, Pilate put him on trial and he did it twice. Herod did it once. And even Herod, in all of his slimy sin, even in Herod, in all of his pompous arrogance, even Herod had to say there's nothing to see. Even Herod had to admit he's done nothing wrong. And now after all of this, it's time to release a prisoner. I mean, if there ever was a slam dunk for Pilate, wouldn't this be it? All right, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll call him guilty and then release him. Until the religious establishment, and that's a powerful word, isn't it? You know, when you hear the word establishment, we kind of get the idea, been there too long. Think they're a little more important than they really are. They've taken on a little more power than they ought to. And what we have come to learn about the establishment in Washington, every bit of that was true about the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And so the religious establishment comes to Pilate and says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to release unto us Barabbas. There it is in verse number 18. Release unto us Barabbas. Barabbas. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Here is the pure, innocent, clean lamb of God. You put him on trial and you haven't laid a scratch on him. And now you want to take a murderer and a rebel and a robber and you want to release some to the world Barabbas. You want to put Barabbas out in the streets. You want Barabbas to rub elbows with your children. What kind of demented people want to release unto us Barabbas. Well, then what are we going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they have the solution there, don't they? And in verse number 21, they cried. And that word cried tells us they didn't stop crying. They started and they kept it at it. They kept on going more incessantly. They cried saying, crucify him, crucify him. Look, this is not a voice in the crowd that says, crucify. No, this becomes the groundswell. This is the voice of the multitude. It gets louder and louder and longer and longer. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him there you go release Barabbas crucify Jesus on what planet does that work that's what happens when it is the just for the unjust well the Bible tells us in verse 23 
the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. Release Barabbas, crucify Jesus, the just for the unjust. And Pilate decides that the law doesn't matter, the trial doesn't matter, the verdict doesn't matter, and the truth doesn't matter. And in verse number 25, he delivered Jesus to their will, the just for the unjust. It takes Matthew, Mark, and John to fill in some blanks now. We know that Jesus is led to the hall corporatorium. There he is stripped, and the Lord Jesus is clothed in purple. After all, the official reason that is given for Jesus' crucifixion is that he is the king of the Jews. So before he will make his way to Calvary, he will be lampooned as the king of the Jews. Of course, a king needs a crown. Jesus will not wear the golden crown. On his head, there is a crown of thorns. He needs a purple robe. They put that on him. And then, of course, the king needs a scepter. For Jesus, they will give him a measuring reed. And they laugh at him and taunt him and mock him, spit upon him, beat him with the reed. Then they scourge him. And it's time to go to Calvary. The just for the unjust. You know, religion likes to tell us exactly where Calvary is, and, but the Bible doesn't say. And, and for all the guesses and all the ideas and all the scholars that are absolutely so positively sure, you know, we really don't know according to the Bible. And perhaps the reason we don't know is because God does not want what religion does to spots. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, I'm sure many of you have, you know, one of the greatest spots to go is the garden tomb. And, and yet as you tour that, the old English caretakers are always careful to tell us, you know, we're not sure this is the spot. But whether that is the actual sepulcher or no, that's pretty much what it must have looked like. But the first time I sat in that garden tomb, the old English caretaker was talking to myself and a preacher friend, and, and I'll never forget what he said. And this, of course, is after we had spent a week or so in Israel. And if you've ever been there, it's just wonderful, it's special, it's a great trip. But it's also frustrating. Because, you know, everywhere you go, oh, you know, that rock right there. We think that Daniel stubbed his toe on that rock. So if you put your coins in the box, you can pray to the rock of Daniel's stubbed toe. And over here, you know, we think Elijah sneezed on that tree one day. It's why it hasn't grown for 2,000 years. And, 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 you know, religion will always worship sites. But that old English caretaker said it perfectly. We do not worship a site. We worship a Savior, exactly. And so maybe that's the reason the Bible never identifies where Calvary is. One thing we know, it was without the gate. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to walk out of the city of Jerusalem, and the Word of God tells us, at least for a while, He is carrying the cross. Now, Hollywood and religion always get it wrong. I just have a default thing, by the way. If Hollywood and religion say it, it's probably wrong. That's my default position. And there's a reason that Hollywood and religion get it wrong. Because they're of their father the devil, and the lust of their father they will do. You see, no one in this place of a crucifixion could ever carry an entire cross. It would weigh upwards of 350 pounds. 
So a criminal was required, at least as far as he could, to carry the cross beam. There was a perpendicular rod in the ground that stayed there all the time. Coming out of the city, the criminal was required to carry the cross beam. Normally, someone would walk in front of the criminal, and they would carry a sign letting everybody know the reason this man had been condemned. I suspect if they did that for Jesus, and there's no reason to think they didn't, they probably were carrying the sign that wound up over his head. In three languages, the language of the common man, the language of religion, and the language of the law, this is the king of the Jews. And now Jesus is out of the gate, and he is carrying that cross beam. Religion says, Hollywood says, that Jesus fell. The Bible never says that. No, no, it just never says that. But what it does say in verse number 26, as they led him away, and for whatever the reason we don't know, they lay hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross. Really? As this procession is making its way towards Calvary, and behind the Lord Jesus are professional mourners, these women, and they would always show up at funerals in places like this. They were paid to screech and to scream and to cry. And sometimes they would play flutes, but it wouldn't be pretty music. It would be ear-shattering music. And, and, and I mean, a death, it sounded as bad as it looked. And it's this mournful procession. It's making its way out of Jerusalem through the city gate. Coming in the other direction is a fellow named Simon. I mean, can you imagine Simon? The Bible tells us he was a Cyrenian. We know that in our modern-day map as the country of Tripoli in North Africa. It had to be more than 10 days earlier by reason of the fact that it took that long to get there that Simon in his hometown of Tripoli, as we know it, he pats his little boy Alexander on the head and, and he taps his little boy Rufus on the head and, and he kisses his wife goodbye and he gets on that boat and he makes that long journey across the Mediterranean Sea towards Joppa. Once in a Jewish man's life, he had to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was the greatest of trips. It was the greatest of pilgrimages. And this is the year for Simon. And here he is all the way from Africa. Now he's come to the land of Israel. He's up at the crack of dawn. You see, with hundreds of thousands of visitors on Jerusalem, there's no hotel rooms that can hold them. So the people would journey out of the city every night and get up early and come. And this is the day to be there. Why, later that afternoon, on the day of preparation, who would have thought? On the ninth hour, three o'clock, that's when they would begin to slaughter a quarter of a million lambs. It was the preparation day for the Passover, not the normal Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath. And now in this most incredible moment in time, in this day of days, the day he's looked forward to all of his life, Simon is finally in Jerusalem. Why, today it'll be the sights of this great city. Hey, it'll be all the sounds of the Passover. Why, even the good and the bad smells of the Passover. Simon is up early because he wants to see it all. And all of a sudden... Here comes this procession towards him. Can you see Simon as he backs out of the way to, to let this deathly procession go by? And, and for whatever the reason, a Roman soldier walks up to Simon and what they would normally do is take their big war swords and put the flat end on the shoulder of a member of the Roman Empire. 
And as soon as they did that, they were saying, we are conscripting you into the army. Simon can't believe it. I've come all the way from Tripoli for one thing, so that in five minutes I can be inside that city. And now this Roman soldier has just told me I'm part of the army. The Roman soldier has put that spear upon my shoulder. And you know what Simon knows? It's what every Roman citizen knows, that if he rebels against that Roman soldier, there'll be a fourth cross. He has no choice. You know, somehow your preacher could go back in time and interview Simon. I'm pretty sure if your preacher stuck a microphone in his face, Simon would say, man, am I ever in the wrong place at the wrong time? If your preacher could bring Simon here tonight and let him give his testimony, he would say, oh, was I ever in the right place at the right time? And so the Roman soldier says, you're going to carry that cross beam. And, and it is Simon that carries that cross the rest of the way to the place where those soldiers will drive the nails through the hands of Jesus. Oftentimes, people would be crucified without nails in their feet. However, we know for Jesus, those nails went through his feet because 1,000 years earlier, God said they would. And now the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified and watching it all is Simon. Simon the Cyrenian. And one of the great stories of the New Testament is that little boy Rufus and that little boy Alexander become mighty servants of God. And his wife becomes such a marvelous Christian that the Word of God tells us Paul said she's my spiritual mother. And I mean by the time it's all said and done in the book of Acts, Cyrenians are soul winners and they're preachers and they're mighty servants of God. And it all had to start with Simon the Cyrenian who was in the right place at the right time. So Simon carries the cross of Jesus to Calvary, where Jesus dies for Simon's sins. I guess you call that the just for the unjust. As Jesus hangs upon the cross, the soldiers, in verse 34, parted his raiment and cast lots. The four articles are divided up, and then there's that robe, that seamless robe. And instead of slicing it into four sections, though these Roman soldiers cast the lots. And for people that are so interested in Jesus prophesying, little do they know they're fulfilling a 1,000-year-old prophecy as they gamble over the clothing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse number 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. Maybe it's lunchtime. Vinegar was a cheap booze, a, a, a poor man's liquor. And they put it to the lips of Jesus, and of course he rejects it. I mean, even in his dying hour, these Roman soldiers can do nothing but taunt him and laugh at him. And of course, it's the just for the unjust. And then there's verse 35. Verse 35. The people stood behold. Really? And it's almost like they got this dumb look on their face. And they're just standing there with the deer in the headlights look. And there's this multitude of people, and they're just standing there watching all of this. Really? Where's the guy that a few weeks earlier was born blind that Jesus heals? Where's he right now? Excuse me, but where is Jairus right now? How about all those freeloaders that took the free meals? Where are they right now? How about the guy, they let him down through the roof and he's walking and leaping and praising God. Where is he today? And as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, 
is dying for the sins of the world, there is not one human who took his meals and his miracles that says a word. All they can do is just stand there with a look on their face beholding him. Of course they are. This is the just for the unjust. In verse number 35, mercifully for the final time in the book of Luke, we get the dirty religious establishment. And the Bible says the rulers also with him derided him. They deride him. They're sneering at him. You know, when you watch religion in the book of Luke, it's a fascinating study. The first time they show up, they're reasoning in their heart against Jesus. By the time you get to the middle of the book of Luke, the Bible says their disgust is written all over their faces. And now at Calvary, the Bible says they're sneering and deriding him. Then again, what else could there be when it's the just for the unjust? As for cowardly Pilate, he gets his last jab in in verse number 38. A superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And then verse number 39, when you think it just couldn't get any lower and it couldn't get any worse, one of the malefactors, and the word malefactor means a very bad man. One of the malefactors which were hang-railed on him. So now here is this very bad man, a criminal dying for his crimes. And the Bible says that he is railing on Jesus. And in Matthew and Mark, the Bible says that at least as the morning begins, it is not just one of the malefactors, both of them are mocking and railing and laughing at the Lord Jesus Christ. If thou be the Son of God, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. The just, even the malefactors got to say something. And then it happens, doesn't it? You might call him Calvary's first convert. There, of course, would be Simon the Cyrenian, and there, of course, would be one of those Roman centurions. But it would seem that the first convert of Calvary in verse number 42, he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. The mercies and the love of Christ are astounding. Here is a man who starts the morning mocking and taunting and laughing at Jesus Christ, railing on him. And if you're to Christ, save yourself and save us. This man with his dying tongue is mocking and taunting Jesus. And by the end of the day, the Lord Jesus is giving unto him eternal life, the just for the unjust. Creation will play its part. There will be a darkness over the land that lasts for hours, three hours. The veil of the temple is rent from the top to the bottom. Only God could do that. The earth is quaking and the graves open. Many of the Old Testament saints walk out of the, uh, the tombs. And then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in verse number 46, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. You know, it's incredibly unusual because a man dying on the cross, his voice would get weaker and weaker and weaker. A man dying on the cross, the last thing he would do is lift back his head and try to suck his final breath of air. But when Jesus is on the cross, at the very end, his voice is loud. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, he doesn't rear his head back to catch a breath. He bows his head to give up the ghost because you and I are reminded 
they did not kill him. He gave his life. And his last words are, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I never, ever, ever have the authority to say those words. Religion convinces people, you're going to commend you. But the only one, the only one who could ever commend himself to Almighty God is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are not sinless, spotless, nor do we have any such authority to commend ourselves to God. Instead, what you and I have to do is do what Stephen did. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And with that, Jesus Christ gives his life for you and for me. In verse number 46, having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Not they killed him, not they murdered him, not they executed him. He gave up the ghost, the just for the unjust. Of course, on that day, Pilate says the reason for his death is because he's the king of the Jews. We hear the religious establishment say, let him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers say, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And, and the very bad man said, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. And you know, they were all right. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the chosen of God. But the reason he stayed upon that cross is because that day he gave his life for you and for me. The just for the unjust. So what does Jesus have to say? You know, we've heard from the religious establishment and the temple Gestapo. And we have certainly heard from the Herods and the Pilots and Pilate again. Why we hear from the multitude, what we hear from them is nothing. We've heard the screeching ladies, and, and we hear from one bad man and then another bad man. There, of course, is Simon the Cyrenian and plenty of others. We've heard from them. But what is Jesus going to say? See, this is the thing about Calvary. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. There's no one that can look at Calvary and come away the same. It's impossible. Either someone is going to look at Calvary and be drawn in and come to Jesus affected by the incredible love of Christ. Or other people are going, just as we read here, they're going to come to Calvary and see Jesus and they're going to be repelled. Because you see, when somebody insists, I can go to heaven by the works that I have done. I can go to heaven by the gifts I have given. I can go to heaven by my baptism, by my confirmation. I can go to heaven because of the religion I belong to. Calvary is incredibly offensive. Because all the abuse and all the suffering of Calvary tells you and tells me not by works of righteousness which we have done, not by a prayer we pray, not by a gift we bring, not by a work we do, not by works of righteousness. And for someone, they look at Jesus and their heart is absolutely captured by the incredible love of Christ. But others who are convinced, I can save myself, I am good enough for heaven, when they see Calvary and they are confronted with how dirty and evil and wicked wicked they truly are, Calvary becomes incredibly offensive. On this day in the Bible, to some Calvary draws them in, but there are others Calvary shoves them away. And so it is today. 
Either a sinner will bow their knee at Calvary and say, Jesus, save me. Or someone will be offended that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only hope for their dirty soul. Calvary. And yet, we haven't heard from the Savior, have we? What is Jesus going to say about all this injustice? And certainly in our society, in our era, all we hear every day, it seems, is all the injustice that is out there. I don't care which group you pick. I don't care which human you name. There is no one who has ever experienced anything remotely close to Calvary. It is the contradiction of sinners against Jesus. It is injustice on a level never before or since seen. So what does Jesus say? And you read that in verse number 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What if we can grasp that? Normally a man on the cross would be cursing and swearing. He'd be uttering threats against everything and everyone. I, the Roman soldiers, probably have crucified many a persons, but they have never heard anybody say anything like this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Maybe that's what captures the heart of that very bad man. Maybe these words are the words that capture the heart of that Roman centurion. Maybe this is what turns Simon from a religious man into a saved man. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so you don't become weary, and so I don't get faint. The Bible says, go to Calvary. Consider him. Years ago, a missionary had returned from the land of India. He'd spent many, many decades or years there, four decades. He was in a missions conference in the United States. And, and of course, being a lifelong missionary to India, and now at a missions conference in the U.S., he knew the question was coming. It always comes. What's the most dangerous thing that ever happened to you in India? And of course, being in India, you better have a cobra story, you better have a tiger story, you better have an elephant story, or all the above. And the old missionary stood there, he said, well, he said, the most dangerous thing that ever happened to me, I'm afraid it happened more than once. He said, my heart got cold. Oh, no, you wouldn't have known it. He said, I was still preaching on Sunday. I was still doing the work of the ministry on Monday through Saturday. I was still doing what I was supposed to do. Nobody else knew it, but God knew it, and I knew it. My heart had grown cold. So he said, when that happened, I would take my Bible and I'd walk out of my village. There was a hill that overlooked the village. I'd climb that hill and sit under a tree. He said, I'd open my Bible and I'd read the Calvary story in Matthew, and then the Calvary story in Mark, and then in Luke, and then in John. And he said, I'd stay under that tree as long as I had to, rereading the Calvary story until Calvary warmed my cold heart. And when Calvary got my heart, he said, then I knew it was safe to go back to work. Calvary, Calvary. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. If you're not saved, what are you going to do with Calvary? 
I mean, that's the bottom line. What are you going to do? Either you're going to look at the cross of Jesus and say, thanks, but no thanks. I will go to heaven on my terms. And by the way, the God of the Bible, read John 3.36, is very clear. You will not go to heaven your way. And religious people, they look right at the cross and say, well, that's nice. And that's quite a sacrifice. But I have my religion. I have my way. I have my ideas. What are you going to do with Calvary? If you could pray your way to heaven, if I could pay my way to heaven, if there was some good thing we can do to go to heaven, why would Jesus have to die like he did? What are you going to do with Calvary? And tonight, if you know him as your Savior, and we just fall deeper and deeper into slumber, and we're weary, and we're faint, and we're upset with everything, angry with this, angry with that, worked up about this, worked up about that, what are we going to do with Calvary? Because the antidote to a Christian who is weary and faint is to run to the cross. And the longer we look at Jesus, the less we're worked up with our problem. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, the just for the unjust. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a privilege to share God's word with you. If God has spoken to your heart because of the message, stop right now and respond to whatever it is God is asking of you. Don't wait another minute. You can pray right where you're at and ask God for his help. If this message has helped you in any way, we would love to hear from you. Let us know if you have any questions or we can help you with your decision. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do ye say that I am? And he offers the same question to you today. What would your answer be?